welcome back to another episode of You Miami Medicine podcast. I'm Ali Ford, the Dean and Chief Academic Officer of the University of Miami Middle School of Medicine. Delighted once again to welcome back to the podcast the great Dr. Matthias Van Harris, the Director of the Diabetes Research Institute uh, at the University of Miami Middle School of Medicine. Uh, I've gone before, I've extensively uh, covered his uh, very prestigious uh, accomplishments in the past, but just remind you, uh, he is a world-renowned diabetes expert who has received numerous prestigious awards and accolades, including being named the number one juvenile diabetes expert in the world, recipient of the American Diabetes Association's Outstanding Scientific Achievement Award, and also the recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Network for Pancreatic Organ Donors with Diabetes, just to name a few of his many, many accolades. So, Dr. Von Harath, Matthias, welcome back. Super happy to be here again. Fantastic. So, we during the first uh, podcast, we talked about type 1 diabetes, we talked about uh, anti-CD3 uh, treatment and why that's important, but also of some of its limitations uh, because you still need uh, immune suppression. And then you started talking about this concept of stem cell-derived atlas because um, part of the problem you outlined for us before was that uh, uh, the beta cells were exposed and then the, uh, the native immune cells recognize it and then attack them, and then that's really part of the pathogenesis of uh, uh, the autoimmune phenomenon that leads to uh, type 1 diabetes. So now, you brought, at the end of the last broadcast podcast, you brought up the concept of uh, the immune-evasive stem cell-derived islet as a way of circumventing some of those problems. So please give the audience a little bit of a primer on that concept and why it's important, and then we will ultimately lead into some of the other novel therapies that you are working on with your team at the DRI. Yeah, that, that it, it is a, indeed a very exciting time right now. Um, as, as we discussed briefly before, uh, there is now a proof of concept that you can make stem cell-derived islets, which are being destroyed in type 1 diabetes by the immune system. And that's been done by the company Vertex. And you can transplant these islets into patients. The, the, the first patient uh, with a full dose actually being treated at UM right here. And so that set sort of uh, put a peg in, in the board saying this can be done. Albeit, like you correctly stated, uh, with full immunosuppression still. And the role of the DRI will be to try to tackle this full immunosuppression problem. Because if we want these stem cell-derived replacements, not only for type 1 diabetes, for many other diseases, if they, they are supposed to go mainstream, we need to make better immunotherapies. Ideally, there would be uh, from the induction maintenance concept, so you limit the time when you get fully immunosuppressed and have then well-tolerable maintenance drugs that don't have many side effects from immunosuppression. But the other side uh, that we can tackle this problem is that the stem cell-derived islets should be immune-evasive. And that is really an exciting opportunity. It adds to the work we do on devices uh, in the sense that somewhere there is the sweet spot with a mild immunotherapy, with an immune device of islets and a device that hopefully will come together that will become a very feasible and tolerable therapy 
for patients. Now, with the immune evasion of any cell that you put back into the body, and you can say it's a big issue in organ transplantation, but we cannot make a whole immune evasive liver at this point quite yet. But at some point, I think that will become possible. That's tolerance. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, 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 it is the, the secret sauce will be to put organs back into patients who are not recognizable by the immune system, sort of already camouflaged. And we learned in diabetes from the natural disease course that there are some key players. For example, in, in the natural course of diabetes, the islets put a lot of major histocompatibility molecules on their surface. Usually, like neurons, they're quite evasive, but they upregulate them. Sort of saying, here we are, okay, how about you come find them? Expose themselves. Expose themselves, the immune system comes, find them. And that actually, this MHC you see in MS, you see it in alopecia, it seems to be a common concept altogether. So there's some of these obvious targets that you would want to lower MHC. There's also cross-learning from our colleagues in oncology. They have used checkpoint inhibitors. And a certain class of checkpoint inhibitors, these PD-1, PD-1 ligand interferon uh, checkpoint inhibitors, as a side effect, you cause diabetes. Because in oncology, you want to sort of get your T cells going to recognize tumors. And as a side effect, with this particular checkpoint inhibitors, you also get the cells going that can recognize the islands. So just, these, just, these pathways... Just for a moment, you, you, this is a very important concept. So just, just a one-liner on checkpoint inhibitors and what exactly, what exactly they do. So that, that has been a huge breakthrough in, in, in oncology. Um, uh, Jim Allison, for one class of these... Uh, 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 checkpoint, as they called inhibitors, got the, the Nobel Prize. And uh, it's a big deal. What they do is they unleash the immune system to be better at tackling tumors. Because in, in uh, immunology... So, so, so the tumor has a way to shut down the ability yeah. of the immune cell to yeah. come to attack it. And now uh, these inhibitors make sure they unleash Yes. The, the killing capacity yeah. of the cells. And in autoimmunity, is the other way around. And uh, Steve and Naima and myself, we had many discussions about this because it's an unsolved, fascinating problem in our Indeed. bodies. How can it be? In, in, in diabetes, alopecia, there's a few cells of the immune system that come there and kill your beta cells. In a tumor, you sometimes have a whole bunch of cells sitting there and they do nothing. They just come to the party and drink the beer. They do nothing. <laughs> they do nothing. So that, I love it. That, 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 that we have really not solved. Where, where, where the DRI comes in is we, we cannot genetically modify 50 things in these stem cells. We have to know the priority of what we should modify and how the rules in humans of this recognition game are really played, how we are all set up. And, and there's knowledge gaps, I think, that the DRI can help fill that will benefit the overall field. And we are quite passionate about trying to fill these gaps from the immunology side too, so we can make targeted, better evasive um, stem cell-derived islet. It's important for trials. Look, the, the trials in type 1 diabetes, they take long. Islet transplant and stem cell trials take long. Um, we don't have that many shots on goal if we want to get this done in a timely fashion, right? And so we got to 
come armed with a with a good bag of knowledge, <laughs> sort of to the starting point. So we so we get things off in the right way, and and that's where I feel that like DRI can have a tremendous bridging function altogether. It's wonderful to have this discussion with someone so knowledgeable. So so again, in terms of the um, immune evasive concept uh, for stem cell derived islands. So what are some of the approaches? Uh, is there a way that we can package them in such a way and, and make them not recognizable and just, just hide them so that they don't upregulate their MHC? So, no, they, they can't say, here I am, and in this way uh, avoid the... So we know that's a key question. And we know some of the rules of this immunological game mm -hmm. from animal models. But not, I mean, humans are not mice. So we always have this translational jump we need to make. And technically, it can be done because of gene editing technologies, not only CRISPR, there's also other technologies. So the vision that this can be done for stem cells, it's doable. What we need to learn is targetly what we really need to do to the islets. I personally think, I'm quite uh, enthusiastic about this, that some of this we can address by making human mini-organs or organoids, or in the case of islets, they're little spheroids. So you, you can do these from stem cells or grow them or reassemble them from donor islets, and then you get to study your mini-organ, so to speak, in vitro. That has advantages. It's faster. It gives you more ethical latitude because at the end it's only an in vitro assay. And it's the real human deal because it's human cells and you can then add human immune system cells to that. Where this will be useful, also I think for tumors and oncology, you can study the direct interface between the organ and the immune system. There's many things you cannot study. If you say, oh, can we build nerves in there? Definitely not yet, it's, it's, it's harder. You could study the immune recognition of nerves by putting nerves into an islet and vessels into an islet, it gets too sophisticated. But it's a, it's a start. We have worked on these models for five, six years now, and we can use them also for drug screening in the sense, if you ask what is the best drugs that positively influence this immune islet interface? And you could turn it around and ask what are the best drugs that enable the immune system to recognize tumors once the cells have arrived there. And the rapid throughput screening ability of these organoid platforms and, and the reproducibility are, are strong parts that I think should be used. And they have moved in the last maybe decade, slowly at the forefront, in industry for sure, also in the eye of regulators, because it gives you another leg to stand on. It's not like you abolish animal models and you replace things, but it's a big leg. You, you get another leg to stand on to make your translational argument. Why this? Why not the next one? Why not the third one? Why a certain trial and not another trial? For this, it, I think it will be extremely important because we need prioritization. Trial, the trials are costly. They're complicated. They take a lot of time. And we will, in the interest of patients at the end, bring the least harmful, most promising approach, of course, for testing in the clinic, yeah. So these organoids uh, sound like a great model, but uh, because of their simplicity, but, but we know that uh, the body is uh, just one complex of course, um, of course. phenomenon. And, and so how hopeful are you that uh, 
this will actually apply uh, to the human condition? And how do we begin to increase the complexity with this organoids, perhaps to mimic or rep to yeah, mimic the human condition more closely? So the, the approach we have taken is to simplify yeah. and to build bottom-up based on things we already know. So the organoids we built and these attack models we built are based on the human pathology we've seen and they are simplified. So they are also with that only good for a certain number of questions. If you have islets and parts of the immune system, you can just address that interface. But that, that's good. That allows us to stand on a re real human situation for that type of situation. If you want to know whether you can inhibit immune cells to traffic from vessels, different question. That's not going to be built in. If you want to know how an innervation can change the visibility of a target organ, not built in, cannot address it. So we, but, but you know, if, if you know the limits of your models, that, that, that in research approach, like in anything in life, if you know your own limits, that, that allows you to be more efficient. If you overestimate yourself, you don't know your limits, then bad things can, can happen. And, and it's with, with these models, it's, it's the same thing. So it's just really another leg, but a very promising one, I, I think, that, yeah. that we will, will have a role in, in, in developing. And it's not, it's not going to be the only thing we do, but it will hopefully help accelerate things. That's the idea. Fascinating, and, and and I love the complex of that simplicity. The, the, I love the simplicity simplicity of the model. Now, now again, you've also looked at um, encapsulated stem cell derived. How does where does that stand? And tell so, us about that. So does that, that work? When I came to the DRI, you know, look, uh, my my background, of course, is autoimmunity and immunotherapies and viruses, and so. I, I came to the DI and I talked to all the faculty and I learned a lot of stuff. And that, <laughs> <laughs> it was so cool. It was so cool because, because the DI does a, a lot with, with, with uh, building new capsules. Capsules actually that contain directly immune suppression within the capsules using certain cell types like mesenchymal stem cells to be incorporated in a capsule that would induce tolerance, better understanding how enough oxygen gets to the beta cells because they are metabolically active. They need a lot of oxygen supply if you transplant them because they are very well vascularized in their natural situation. And at the same time, keep some of the immune system at bay. That has been fascinating to me. This new frontier, sometimes even with bio 3D printing, that you can engineer capsules, you can put immunosuppression in the capsules, you can make sure that the islets are contained well, at least in a semi-immune evasive environment that's engineered. I, I think that will remain a, a big component that we need to move forward because we, 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 we don't own the crystal ball to say, or immune system alone will solve the problem, or immune evasive islets alone will solve the problem, or you just need a capsule and that will solve the problem. I tend to think you need all of these together and that's where the interdisciplinarity is so important. And I, I, I mean, what I found was just most fascinating. I, I, th I think in, in this, this way and other ways, the, the DRI is even in some ways a, a bit of a hidden jewel just because the, 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 the energy, the people and the expertise is phenomenal. So, 
this is great. This is fascinating to me, this concept of encapsulation, because I mean, the theory, it also seems to be straightforward. It's, there's some simplicity about it, but yet it's far more complex when I think about that uh, compared to the simplicity of the organoid where you, you have an isolated phenomenon. So, so, so tell me a little bit about the challenges involved with uh, the encapsulated stem cell derived eyelids and, um, and, and what it's going to take to make that work. What are the challenges and, and, and how would you compare those models? Are they complementary? Um, so the field has advanced. Like it was in the 90s, and that was the same for the encapsulation field, we thought in the 90s, actually when I started my postdoc, there was a well-renowned researcher coming, visiting scripts from Harvard at that time. And this researcher told me, look, diabetes will be solved in one year. You're wasting your time, man. You are working on the wrong models. This disease will be solved. And it was actually rightly so an enthusiasm back then about the MHC molecules that define some of the disease. And there was a lot of enthusiasm. Similar in the encapsulation field, there was these materials that could work in mice and people thought, well, this is going to be good. Just the capsule, interperitoneal, delivered, problem solved. It will be fine. And over the time, the field has learned that mice are not humans and that certain things can get lost in translation. That doesn't belittle mouse models, but it needs to make us aware of the limitations that we have learned over the last 20, 30 years of this uh, research. The challenge is indeed, because you cannot pack a capsule in an organoid in a simplistic way. That, as you can imagine, that that's not going to hang together. So you need to, at some point, run trials or at least do studies also in non-human primates that also are done at the DRI. And so that translational way is more challenging because you have to do the real deal. You can't use a little bridge and say that's likely going to work. Nevertheless, the field has advanced tremendously in terms of recognizing what is required from the capsule, the materials, the local immunosuppression, the oxygenation of the islets. We have to have ways that capsules don't become fibrotic when they're implanted because that's going to and problem you, up the Where do you implant them in the first place? So uh, there's different, different ways that have, also there the field has advanced. There's different ways to do it. Uh, many have tried sub-Q, um, where you have to help with the vascularization because there's not that many, many vessels. There's interesting studies on the omental pouches in, in the peritoneum. Um, and maybe even in a more vascularized muscle environment. It, it, the scalability is also an important issue. The capsules need to be flat enough or pre-vascularized enough that you get enough oxygen to the beta cell islets. But you also don't want to receive 50 capsules <laughs> as a patient. So this equation, I think, is being solved. Also, a lot of it spearheaded by Vertex and by the proof of concept of, of their first implant, implantation trials that they're conducting now. So it's exciting, but there's, there's still a lot that needs to be learned in the field. Wonderful, wonderful. So over the past um, two podcasts, uh, we have explored the field of type 1 diabetes, you have provided us your insight into some of the therapeutic um, uh, options, some of the novel therapies that are still on the horizon. And uh, I, I'd love for you to share with the audience uh, your perspective on where we are, 
Uh, are we one? Are we within one year of solving this mystery? Uh, what are some of the major barriers that have yet to be overcome, and where do you feel that field is going in the role of the DRI in solving this mystery? So I'm always very hesitant to make any time promises. The biggest reason is that in type 1 diabetes, the patients have now the option to have pumps, sensors, closed loops in some cases, and they're good insulins and also other drugs that patients can take. So, so any trial you conduct, the primary situation is it needs to be safe, especially as there are many children afflicted. That makes it not possible to move quite as fast in clinical trials compared to, for example, if I had a terminal cancer and I have no choices and I would come to you and say, give me anything. I, I'm going to be willing to try anything because I see I'm out of options, right? So in type 1 diabetes, therefore, the trials have to be safe and they take longer. And that's why it's difficult to make a time promise. A pivotal phase 2, 3 prevention trial will take five years. That's how it has to be. And it has to be powered properly. You can't do it in five people. You have to probably have somewhere around 70 people per arm to make things solid. So that's why it takes longer. So that leads us back to the role of the DRI. More so than for many other diseases, because of this ethical framework that we have to operate in, in type 1 diabetes, we have to have, before we start a trial, our priority ducks fully in a row. We have to come armed with a deck of knowledge as much as we possibly can. If we do a therapy for the beta cells, we have to be clear, this is the best one. We don't want to run three, five-year trials to really find out. We, we, we have to arm ourselves with all the legs and crutches we can get to come to the, come to the race as best equipped as we possibly can. And that's where the DI comes in. It's a, it's a very... It's not a particularly easy framework to operate in um, uh, for that reason, but I think we can be a tremendous accelerator. So I know that was a circumspect answer, sidestepping any statements about given time. <laughs> I'll, 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 I will challenge you again, but so you know, in a different way, because you know I don't quit. Um, after 25 years, after 25 years, um, of focused research in this area. So what makes you hopeful? What makes you feel that uh, a cure is imminent, it's regardless the, of the time? It's the pegs in the board, the, the, the immunotherapy peg that we discussed with anti-CD3 that will open a whole bunch of doors. The proof of concept that we can now say that you can make stem cell-derived islets that actually work in human patients. These pegs, they make us helpful. It's like breaking down a problem we used before in this airplane analogy, right? It, once you can at least fly down the hill and you know there could be something like a propeller and an engine that helps you, then you can start planning for the transatlantic flight and get your ducks in a row to see what's really missing. But you can break down the problem and isolatedly start tackling the remaining issues like we discussed the immune system and these type of things. That makes me very hopeful. It was in the early days, there was a phase of hyper-hopefulness in the 90s that this was an easy problem. Then this all collapsed because the whole community had overestimated 
the simplicity of the problem based on mouse studies. And I think that's fair. It's always good to be op 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 hopeful and then learn it is elsewise. And uh, then just a lot of things needed to be tackled. That's why it takes so long. In the ethical correct framework, that's, and, and I understand the urgency and, and the wish of all patients that we, we would be faster. And, and it's not for, for a lack of trying, it's really to do this right and do it in an ethical, proper framework for the disease. But it's a hopeful time. You know, these pegs in the board that we discussed here, they're, they're really, you know, you can tick them off and go like, now we know that certain things are actually possible and we can build on that. That's why it's such an exciting time. Yeah. Well, this, this has been fascinating. And, and I'm glad that uh, we are ending with this message of hope. Because I know that uh, for many uh, parents out there whose kids are suffering from type 1 uh, diabetes and, and others, um, this is a serious problem. But uh, the approach that uh, you and the DRI happen to be taking under your leadership is that uh, we have to be ethical, we have to be methodical, and you have to be unequivocal about the potential for any kind of clinical trial that you want to embrace. And just to add to this, we need the interdisciplinary spirit you have here at UM. That is just, it is special for, for academic research. It is a special place. And, and, and I say this wholeheartedly because now I've been here for a while, I've talked to many people, that that will help the cross-fertilization that we can do here. That will help tremendously cross-learning across disciplines, diseases, and accelerate the field. I, I just love this. And it's very unique in, in academia. You have a fantastic place here. Well, uh, Matthias, let me echo the sentiments of the rest of the faculty at the Middle School of Medicine. We are excited to have you here, and we look forward to major advances in the field of type 1 diabetes through the DRI under your capable leadership. So I am super excited. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, this has been another fascinating edition of Humanity Medicine Podcast, and our distinguished guest was none other than Dr. Matthias Van Herth, the Scientific Director of the Diabetes Research Institute, who's been with us no more than five months, but already is transforming our approach to the treatment and hopefully cure for type 1 diabetes mellitus. Join us again for another episode of Humanity, Inside Humanity Medicine Podcast. Until then, I'm your host, Dean Henri Ford, Chief Academic Officer of the Middle School of Medicine at UNL.